Midnight Chats. Hello, my ghosties. Hello, my ghoulies. Hello, my moth people. My name is Jay, and I am here with... Rory. And Nick. The excitable Nick. <laughs> Today, we are presenting another Midnight Chat, this time with author Leland E. Hale, who wrote the book What Happened in Craig, the story of Alaska's worst unsolved mass murder. True crime. Yeah, true crime. We're going to be discussing true crime, his writing career, and a whole bunch of other things. Mostly that Alaska's pretty fucked up. And pretty cool. Yeah, like, here's the thing is, it's fucked up, but I also now want to go more. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> want to go more. Like, I, I specifically, I want to see the giant uh, avenue of rural debauchery in Anchorage that Ab- he was talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. That probably doesn't exist anymore. I'd be or, my it's, guess. or it's worse. I hope it's worse. I mean, I agree. I hope it's worse. <laughs> what if we what if we go up to Anchorage, Alaska, and we walk into like we walk into like a strip club slash bar slash bank because that's apparently yeah. also what they are. And there's just like a Sasquatch and a winter themed Mothman very clearly having a tense breakup in the corner while everyone else is just trying to ignore them. I would be so upset if it, I, it, it took me this long in life to find out that to see cryptids, I can just go to Alaska. They're just living in the open up there. Why do we always come back? to Sasquatch and or Bigfoot having a relationship with Mothman. I just want those kids to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) It's because Mothman is our mascot and because Nick is a Sasquatch. So, (laughs) okay, that's fair. No, but this was a this was a fun interview. Uh, Leland Hale is a really nice guy. Uh, He's really, really knowledgeable about the history of Alaskan crime and And fishing. And he's just so happy to talk about something that's not Robert fucking Hansen, which I (laughs) understand because I, I like true crime and I don't even like talking about Robert Hansen. The guy bugs me. Yeah, no, honestly, like I've I've I, I, uh, less than you, Jay, but I've done tangential research into many serial killers and Robert Hansen. It, it just bugs me. The whole cons because the, the problem with him is it's not like other ones where they grab you and they kill you or they torture you. This guy gives you a chance to run like he gives oh. it, but you're still screwed. You're in the middle of nowhere being hunted for sport. Yeah. Oh, so he's like a true yeah, sociopath he would ab- he would abduct or pe- psychopath. He would abduct people in a little plane, take them out to the middle of nowhere in Alaska and then let them go and hunt them. No. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, Don't do Mar- that. Marcus Parks described him as incel Elmer Fudd. And oh, my that's God. What he is. Yeah. He is if Elmer Fudd okay. was an incel. But in case you didn't catch it, this interview, not about Robert Hansen. No Robert Hansen here. This is the investor murders, which are cooler. That, no, none of it is cool. People I, are dying. I know. I'm sad people are dead. That's bad. <laughs> I really wish you sounded more committed to that I, statement. I'm, I'm sad people are dead. There we go. Some genuine human emotion. I hate you. So let's get to it. Yep, let's go. <laughs>
All right, so right out the gate, uh, first of all, on the phone with us, we have Mr. Leland Hale, author of What Happened in Craig. Leland, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. All right, so uh, jumping right in, there are a couple questions that we here at Noctivigant love to ask all of our authors uh, when we get them on. And the first one is, what are you reading? Uh, Do you have any books that are burning a hole in your nightstand or your travel case? Uh, What kind of books do you tend to like? Well, right right now, I'm deep into writing a new book. And so uh, I'm wading through about, I don't know, 10,000 pages worth of court records and and interviews and things. So that's keeping me pretty busy on the reading front. It's an interesting case. That's all I can tell you for now. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's all over the place. I like complicated stories and this certainly succeeds at that level it's it's true crime again and it i'm probably one of the few people who's actually benefited from from the pandemic it's it keeps me at home (laughs) right (laughs) and 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 in my studio writing and so like i I understand people wanting to get out, but for a writer, you got to stay home. Hey, I'm I'm right there on the level with you. I've gotten so much work done over the, over the course of this pandemic. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I I think I wrote like forty. I think I wrote like thirty five to forty thousand words in the space of two months when the pandemic started because it was the only thing that kept me from going insane. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, that's really cool. And actually, I, I, you know, when we were read, when I was reading what happened in Craig, it did occur to me, man, you, you must have had to dig through mountains of paperwork oh, to, yeah. uh, to kind of get all those little details. And as you said, you, you like complicated cases. And I think what happened in Craig certainly uh, fits that criteria. Yeah, uh, we are still unpacking it a little bit ourselves. Mm-hmm. So. Well, on that front, what does your writing process look like? I know that in some interviews and online, it's mentioned that you've taken several years to write each of your books. Uh, do you tend to do all your research up front as you're writing? Anything like that? So I like to do as much as possible up front. But discovery has a way of opening up new avenues that one needs to explore. So, so until the book is like out the door and published, there's a chance that I'll try to find something else. That said, um, a lot gets left on the proverbial cutting room floor. I just like to have everything, quote unquote, everything. Right. Of course, you don't. But, but you know, well, okay, I'm a, you know, I'm kind of a completist, I guess. And the thing that's nice for me in that respect is, especially in the, in the sort of the new publishing arena, is that once the book is out, now I have lots of more material that I can share with with readers that was not in the book. Because th- there's always so much more material than than you can possibly put down. So, is uh, and are those be is that what you've been posting to uh, the blog on your website? I noticed there's a lot of articles on there. I was trying to dig through all the ones uh, related to the Craig murders. Yes, I I have more. So the, the, the book that got published was a lot shorter than even the original manuscript. So that there's always a rich vein of, of additional material. 
And then one of the things, I, this is kind of a curious one, because I do true crime, I'm always looking at contemporaneous stories because the focus of true crime is mostly going to be this sort of you've got your blinders on and all you're going to see is the, the crime and that story. But of course, life goes on all around it. And I, you see all these other, you know, who's president? Well, it's not really germane, but, you know, it is when you write later who was president, what else was going on? What's the background where there, for example, and in, in the period of, of what happened in Craig, there was actually like, I don't know, that year or within the, a couple of years, something like 18 murders that were being investigated in Alaska. So it was just this kind of a oh, wow. pouring out of crime in a particularly concentrated period. Wow. Uh I, I don't know why I always pictured Alaska be so much more serene, you know, <laughs> uh, no Anchorage, especially in like the seventies and eighties was incredibly violent. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, because you, you get, because what happens is you get, we, we know the most violent people are young men and, and that's what you, that's what you got a lot in that period. You had a lot of people coming up, working on the pipeline, you had people working in the fishing industry mm. Um, there's lots of guns in Alaska there's, and, and, and part of that's just a survival. I mean, I went cross country skiing once with my cop friend, you know, he's taking a pistol along. I huh. said, what, what bears it, huh. we don't want to get. Okay. So, so there's Fair. a sort of a survival thing about the weapons. And of course there's lots of drinking. And so, Mix. Yeah, it was. It, it can be a crazy place. Mixed testosterone, uh, guns, and alcohol. I suppose that is a recipe for a lot of a lot of impassioned murder. Yeah, I had a coworker years ago that uh, all vacation. He took all his vacation time at one time, and he would just spend like a month up in Alaska. And he said that he said the same, like a very similar thing. Like he's like, you don't go anywhere because he was out in like the wilderness somewhere in like northern Alaska. He's like, you don't go anywhere without a gun of some sort. Yeah. All right. So I'm uh, moving on to our next question. Uh, one thing that we couldn't help but notice is you have three books out. So there's the uh, Butcher Baker book. There's What Happened to Craig. And then there is a fiction novel called Huck Finn is Dead. Um, and not many authors that at least we've encountered have made the jump from fiction to nonfiction. Uh, do you prefer writing one over the other? Do you find either more rewarding or is it kind of apples and oranges? It's hard to say. It's actually quite hard to jump from nonfiction to, to fiction in the, in the publishing industry, they kind of, you kind of get pegged as one or the other. And it's, it's, it's really a different process. I like both, but I, I really like doing the research. I really like doing the homework. I really like digging into to nonfiction. That's, I think that's really where I'm most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I like the reason I can imagine, at least for me, and I'm not a writer like these two, but I would imagine if I was going to try something, it would be nonfiction just because I like research so much. Yeah. All right. I did. I did a seminar up in Alaska when, when what happened to Craig came out and it was, uh, there was, there's four authors and two of us were nonfiction and two of us, two were, were fiction writers. We all wrote about crime and the name of it was called True crime versus perfect crime. Hmm. 
Because, huh. of course, if you're writing fiction, it can always be perfect. You know right. how it ends. Right. You have control over everything, whereas in true crime, not so much. Right. So you're the, writing about it as it happens, so you don't have any control over yeah. the scenario. I mean, authors, you know, I, I had a, a really good friend who actually wrote uh, sort of those, I, I want to say, dime store crime, you know, he, crime books. He would like write one a month. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But his advice to me was always, you know, resist the urge to tell all. Mm. And, and so in any kind of writing, it's not just what you say, but what you don't say. So there is a sense of controlling the narrative. Right. I, I mean, I, you don't want to read, nobody wants to read the 10,000 pages of court records that I have. Huh. That's just not, Right. So you're, you're going to leave stuff out. And it's, I always think of music, right? It's not just the notes you play, but it's the notes you don't play. It's the, 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 sure. the silence you leave between the words or between the, the notes. Absolutely. Uh, I dig that. That's a, yeah, that's going to linger. <laughs> um, so our, so my next question for you is, uh, Nick brought up the fact that your first book was, uh, was Huck Finn is dead, a novel. I wanted, I wanted to know what personally caused the pivot for you from fiction to nonfiction. Was there an inciting incident or was it just gradual and what drew you to true crime specifically? Okay, let's, let's unpack that. So, actually, <laughs> butcher, butcher Baker was first. Oh, okay. Oh. So we had the True order wrong. was first, and that's that's an interesting backstory. My, my first wife worked for an organization called Seattle Rape Relief, and you you may know that the state of Alaska has a persistent perennial problem of sexual assaults. Uh, yes. And, and so the guy who was running this Trooper Academy, a guy named Walter Gilmore, who was my co-author for Butcher Baker, was at that time running the Trooper Academy. And so my ex-wife and some other folks got a contract to train troopers and how better to handle sexual assault victims so that they could start getting some convictions. And so most people don't know this, but Seattle is actually a suburb of Alaska. We're the closest major city. We're the closest major hub. And so very often, if you're in Alaska, there are two places you're going to go when you leave the state. In the winter, you're going to go to Hawaii. (laughs) But the rest of the year, if you go somewhere, you're going to come here. And so we got to know each other and he knew I was a writer. He was not a writer. In fact, he was dyslexic. And so it was a challenge to him in some ways. So we partnered together. And so I like to say I kind of backed into true crime. And then right after that, I started actually working on what happened in Craig. Like in 1990, probably 1992. And it was was kind of disappointing because I had the book. It was finished. I sent it to the the publisher, the first word back from my agent was they love it. And then the next thing it's, they're not going to publish it. Not only <laughs> that, but then 
the my agent said, and not only are they not going to publish it, but the reason they rejected it tells me that we're not going to resubmit it anywhere else. And the problem at the time was there was a $175 million lawsuit that had been fired, filed by, by John Peel. Oh, so yeah. nobody wanted to touch it. And so yeah. in that sort of moment, I said, I still want to write. And I had this, you know, fiction idea. And I said, why not do it? So I, so I did it. So fascinating. So um, I'm curious, like, I, Obviously, uh, the investor murders happened a bit before our time. However, uh, what was that? I mean, what was your first encounter with the case? Like, how did you become aware of it? And uh, I guess what were your thoughts on it as it was happening? So it was a, it was a, it was well covered in the Seattle area media where I live, because even though this this case, we th- I, you know, you sort of naturally think of a case as belonging to the place it occurred which is Alaska. In fact, all the principles were from Bellingham, which is in Washington State. So it was really, in some ways, a Washington State crime that happened to occur in Alaska. So I was very familiar with the story and and read about it quite a bit. In fact, Walter and I started writing. I was up in Alaska for Butcher Baker right after it occurred. Of course, then we're 92 when, when Butcher Baker was published. And so that was going to be our next book. In fact, I, you know, I went, I'm almost ashamed to say, went on the Sally Jesse Raphael show and we pitched the new book to our, to our publisher <laughs> and th- at that very time. And, and she told me what, what a true crime book is, which is, it's either got a, it's okay. Let me, a true crime book has to have a high body count or be about somebody rich and or famous. That was what her mantra is. And we said, Oh, we, we got that. We, okay. Yeah. High body count and or rich and famous. I mean, that does spark true to a lot of the true crime. Yeah. Well, especially the stuff that, you know, if you're Dateline or some of those shows, you mm-hmm. don't you don't need. A, a, I mean, that's a, those are twenty minute shows, so you don't need to pack a lot in. Right. But when you get to a book, you really want something there. I mean, people pitch ideas to me all the time, and the first my first thought is that a short story, an article, or is that really a book? And you know, you want to have you want to have so much material for a book that you, you can't use it all, in my opinion. I mean, that makes sense. You want to be able to write a story out of all the information. If you have just enough information, you're not going to be able to cut any of the fat off. So kind of nope. ma- it makes sense. You'd want right. an overwhelming amount of information. Yeah. And I, I tend to like really complicated stories. So uh, I can see that at least from uh, the from the two that I'm semi familiar with. Well, one that I am familiar with, with the book that I, with what happened in Craig. So 
I have tangential uh, information about the the Robert Hansen book. I haven't quite, I haven't gotten around to picking a book Butcher Baker yet, but it's on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Rory Rory and Nick's relationship with the Robert Hansen case is just me occasionally cramering into their offices while they're trying <laughs> to get work done, and I'm just stand there and I ramble at them about <laughs> about Robert Hansen or Richard Ramirez, whoever it is that's bugging me today. I All guess right, right, and then and I, then I, I can't. You know, I started, I mean, not to get off the topic of what happened in Craig, but but sometimes you write something and it just won't go away. And mm-hmm. that's Butcher Baker. I mean, I started writing in 1984. It was published by 1991. We had some hiccups there, too. And it's, you know, it kind of, it just, I think it's in its sixth printing. I'm, I'm still taking calls to do TV shows and radio shows. And thank you guys for changing the subject. I'm so happy <laughs> for this to be what happened in Craig. <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. I mean, we do, uh, we do have a question for you on Butcher Baker, though. <laughs> okay, of course. Just, just one, though. Just, just one. Just, just one. Just one. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, we we tracked down what happened in Craig because um, our our podcast typically does uh, books on paranormal topics, like on UFO abductions, hauntings, demonic possession, things like that, um, and. So I when I do true crime, because it's my personal hobby and my personal obsession, I tend to zero in on unsolved cases just because that feels more thematically. Yeah, it feels more spooky, more thematically in line with what we're doing. So that's that's why I ended up picking uh, what happened in Craig, because they're be. Because it's it's not solved. No one went to jail for it and nobody knows for certain who actually did it. So, yes, we were I was very interested in that case, especially because I was reading the dust jacket of the book and I slowly realized it's like I've never heard of this case before. It was just completely outside of my realm of knowledge. And that's a little that's a little odd for me with true crime. I've been into it since I was 11 years old. Well, and on that note, I don't think any of us had ever heard of the investor murders, and now they won't leave my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of on that topic, though, uh, to add on to what Jay was saying, uh, you know, obviously you have Butcher Baker with Robert Hansen, and then you have the investor murders. Um, and yet not a lot of people have heard of either of those cases. Do you think Alaskan true crime is overlooked compared to things that occur in the lower 48? And if so, why do you think that is? It's it's definitely overlooked. I mean, part of it is Alaska kind of punches below its weight. Mm. It's it's a small state in terms of population. It's not a small state physically. No, not by any Um, means. And and there's there's sort of a mythology about it. It's a place where, and it's a place where. So I'm a Westerner, and and there's a, a I'm so I mean I'm by that I mean I was born in the West, and there's this sense when you're in the West that okay where do I go now and it's Alaska, but it's really so far away from the American consciousness. True. I mean, even just look at a map of the United States. Is it is it ever fairly represented on the map? You know, here's the, here's the continental U.S. and here's this little dot down there. Well, I guess that's Hawaii. And right. then there's a slightly bigger dot down there on the other corner. 
oh, that must be Alaska. And so, so just, I just think physically, even in our maps, we don't do it justice. Yes. And it just happens in a, and, and you know, and every once in a while, you know, we get some character sent down from Alaska, Sarah Palin or whoever. And, and, and so it's just an eccentric place. And, uh, you know, I think, plus there's sort of this, I think there's, uh, we, we certainly noticed on the, on the other coast, the left coast that, you know, the media powerhouses are a lot of them are on, on the East coast. And that's, you know, and that's fair. You know, that's where stuff starts. It's, you know, the two big media centers. I mean, obviously we have LA, mm-hmm. but I think the other, the other thing to, to mention here, and again, this comes from the publisher at Penguin, true crime actually tra- tends to be um, geographical. So the audience for a true crime is it tends to be geographical or has historically. That's changing because of the internet and other sort of ways to get the story out. But if it, but a publisher is like in the nineties would tell you this book will sell, it'll sell wherever there was media coverage. So what would that mean in this case? Or it means they would sell in Seattle, the Seattle area would sell in Canada. Vancouver, BC, because there was coverage there, it would sell in Alaska. Right. So they tend to be regional stories, so they don't cross over until they become sort of nationalized. But, you know, all these stories were written about, and that's one of my sort of criteria. Did the New York Times publish a story about it? Yes. Okay, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Again, because that sort of has national, I mean, both books sell all over. I mean, we have we have readers in Japan, we have readers in England, Australia. So, it, it, the I think that the market has changed. It's it's and of course, look. That's the other thing is we have this beast of these shows. For example, true crime all the time. Well, I'm sorry. There's not that many great stories. And so there's this hunger for stories. I think that's the other part that's bringing some of these maybe more obscure stories to the forefront and a, and a more national audience, which makes me happy. Right. My next question, which is um, a little bit simpler. Do you, other than the two that you've written about so far, do you have like a favorite true crime case or just a case that you're surprised doesn't get more attention? Assuming that question doesn't force you to reveal things about the new book that you don't want to reveal. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't, that's sort of like asking me about your kids. Fair. I get get that. (laughs) They're all, you know, you're going to say they're all my favorites. (laughs) I'll be true to the author and say my favorite true crime is the next one I'm writing. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And then then when that one's done, it'll be the next one after that. Yeah. I mean, that makes that makes perfect sense. (laughs) But I will say I will say um, I've had some I've had some really sort of it was almost faded that I would end up writing about true crime. I used to do, so Ted Bundy, of course, was quite active in our area. Yeah. Um, and he's quite famous. And there was, a, for about a year, <coughs> excuse me, for about a year or so, I had a job 
at the Washington State Energy Office. And so I commuted from Seattle with a group of three other people who work there. And it's, you know, it's uh, 60 minutes each way. And one of our, one of our car, people in our carpool was, is, was named Carol Boone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I take it that name Carol, means something. Carol Boone, not only did she know Ted Bundy, but she had his baby. Oh, yeah. She, she was, so she was in our carpool. And the, this place that I was working, which is the Washington State Energy Office, used to be called the Washington State Energy uh, Emergency Services um, Group, <laughs> administration, whatever it was. Ted Bundy had worked there. So, so everybody there knew Ted Bundy. God. Wow. And it was, and it was actually kind of not surprising. It was, this was kind of a job where a lot of people worked there, were working there because they were part of the political spoils system. So they worked on the campaign for somebody and then, Hey, let's pay them off. And Hey, we got a job here in, in Olympia and you'll love it. And, so it was virtually everyone, with the exception of Carol, was convinced that, yes, Ted's the guy. I don't know why you think Ted's not the guy, Carol, but he is. <laughs> My God, <laughs> that is that 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 is a little mind boggling to me of like you. I, I, I am one of those people where I have a tendency to forget of like, oh, yeah, all of these people involved in these cases had like a life that was going on completely outside of that case. And they were interacting with other people who then interacted with other people. And it's like, right. so thank you for the reminder that, no, they are not actually completely removed from our society. Uh, they are interacting with and infecting the things around them. So kind of on that note, I have a I haven't. An unplanned question. Uh, in doing your prep work for what happened in Craig, uh, I know that it mentioned in the book a couple times that you did interviews. Uh, who all involved in the case did you actually uh, talk to or on the topic of encountering people associated with these cases? So I, I, I talked to, to Bob Anderson, who is the first cop on the scene, which was probably probably the most important interview because he really set the scene and, and I really try to work. I work really hard on that opening. The first sentence is always the hardest sentence to write. The first paragraph is always the hardest paragraph, the first page. And you, I really want to pull people into the story. And so having an interview with him and all the truths that he could tell me was just so visual, so graphic. So you, you just sense the insanity of that moment. And, and of course I've been to Craig and it's, it's that just sort of doubles the piece. Of course, now he's told me some things that I needed to confirm. For example, he talked about a big fight between the two sort of, Warring, I won't. Warring is probably too strong a word to use, but conflicting s groups within the police, right? There was the homicide investigators, and then there was the guy who'd come down from Juno, and and they each had separate sort of specialties at the time, and I so I had to confirm, right, with with one of the, with the, one of the homicide investigators, so. 
so Ronald tells me about this big fight you guys had where you're like, you know, and he just kind of twinkle in his eye and yeah, that, yeah, there's something like that happened. So that was important. The other thing I think I did that was really critical was I, I happened, I got lucky. Well, so Seattle's kind of a fishing boat town. And, and, and I came across some folks who said, well, you're writing a book about murders on a fishing boat. Have you ever fished? No. <laughs> so I spent about two weeks working on a Perth Saner in, in Alaska. And, and so some of the scenes about how cramped and paranoid it is and how just you're crammed in there and, and how you can easily hate somebody and really be mad at them are, are all from that two weeks on the fishing boat. I, didn't, I had a glamour job. I was the cook. <laughs> but, but you but you can't get away with just being a cook because there's so many jobs so i actually had one of the more potentially dangerous jobs which sounds simple i was stacking the net at the back of the boat now you're only about two feet away from falling into the water which is cold and you will you know they better rescue you quickly or you will not survive and so so but i learned a lot and, and really how hard you work. I mean, you're working because you can only, the fishing, the fishing industry is very regulated in Alaska. And, and so, I mean, they even have planes, spotter planes, right, from the Department of Fisheries, seeing how many fish are coming back and can we fish and can we not fish. And so it's, if they say it's an opening, you go and you go as early as you can and you work until they say you can't fish anymore. And so you're barely sleeping, you, you know, you're fishing all day. There's a guy in a skiff, he's eating lunch in the skiff. So as a cook, I had to make, make sure he had lunch because he, he can't really come back. I mean, he comes back, but only briefly. It's a, it's a three cycle, stack the net, unload the fish, send the net back out, bring the net back in. And you're trying to do, Everything in in a twenty minute interval, then you're on you're on target. That's that's intense. Yeah, fishing I, is but, a serious business. Well, and that was one section of your book that I that stuck with me was the description of the fisherman's life, and mm-hmm. I can see where it came from because uh, I just thought, man, if I had just gone through that, I might be feeling murdery a little a little murdery too. I mean, it, it, um, it, it helped drove ho- drive home why so many of the crew members on the investor were mad that Mark kept bringing his kids on board yeah. because I'm sure that wasn't helping the situation. Right. Uh, so, right. Although the guy who was most irritated was the older guy, right? The former, the the former border guard or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, he, like he said, I'm older. I don't like kids under underfoot. <laughs> but that, but that's that's how they designed the boat was to be a family boat, and so it was quite big. Um, this, I mean, if you look at sort of all the fishing boats. And I, again, I was just up there and I was reminded how, how big the Delta boats were. They weren't just, I mean, they were so, that it's called a limit saner, which means that the, the, the length of it is regulated by the state of Alaska. So it's the maximum, but where you really notice it is how broad a beam it is. So it's a very big boat. And, you know, they've, they kind of kidded themselves that they could, have the family up there. But so the family was actually only there 
part of of the of the year when they were fishing only when they started doing the salmon so they did they had a whole season before before the family showed up and thousands of miles i mean they went all the way up to like past the aleutian islands which i don't know if you're looking at the map right now but it's a long journey no, I, I'm, I'm not looking at one right now, but I'm familiar with it. I was looking at a map of Alaska several times while reading the book. Uh, so go, kind of go back to the interview question. Uh, as a quick follow up, was there anyone that you wanted to interview, but you didn't manage to get a hold of them or you didn't manage to uh, kind of get them nailed down? Well, I wanted to I didn't want to interview John Peel. Uh, naturally. Yeah. And in fact, I did call him. And he was very nice and he was very polite. And he said he couldn't talk to me. And what I learned later was that that was the time when he and his attorney had sued the state of Alaska, sued the city of Bellingham, sued a bunch of individual police officers and investigators. And so he literally could not talk to me. Right. That makes sense. And the other person I wanted to talk to was Marianne Henry, who was the prosecutor. Same thing. Well, Walter, actually, Walter said, my father, we were working, we started working together on that book. And so he called her and he had the same thing. She can't talk. And and so we, we had this sense of what we have, we're going to have to make do with in terms of actual interviews. But the, the, the court records were extensive. And of course, the other pieces, we were starting 10 years, about 10 years afterwards, not really quite 10, six or seven. And, and so my sense was, if there are good interviews, which there were lots of really good interviews, those are closer to the time. You know, people's memories start to drift. They start to reimagine things or reorganize things. And so the closer I feel like if I'm doing something historical, the closer I am to the actual record of the times, the better. Now that said, the, the Anderson interview was one of those ones where traumatic, we know people don't forget very traumatic things. And that was very traumatic. It was so traumatic. He quit being a trooper. Oh, wow. He has a lodge. You can go fishing. If you're ever in if you're ever in Prince of Wales Island, call him up. He's got a great lodge. Great. It's it's a it's it's a it's a a unique place. So Prince of Wales Island is the fourth biggest island, I think, in the United States, after the island of Hawaii and the island of Kodiak and Long Island. Yeah, it's uh, bigger than Delaware. Wow. Yeah, it's it's huge. And it's it's quite unpopulated. The really the first inhabitants there were were uh, the, the Alaska Natives and the Tlingit tribe, and then later on uh, the people from the um, the Haida kind of invaded from the south. And and so it's I don't know if you're familiar with Alaska art, but all the incredible. Northwest Coast art with the carving and, you know, the totem poles and the bent wood boxes and all that cedar stuff. That's there's a lot of that there in that area. And oh, so that's it's cool. It's kind of a magical place. 
So moving on to our next question, and this is this is the one question we have about Butcher Baker, and then we'll never ask you about it again. We promise. (laughs) Um, And it's not it's not even about the book itself. It's about actually what you were talking about, the response to that book, how it's kind of become the definitive in, in many in many circles. I've heard it referred to as the definitive book on Robert Hansen, and it was. Like it was the the primary source for last podcast on the left series about him. Um, were you expecting it to get as popular as it did, or did it kind of take you by surprise? Well, I'll say it really took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, the fragmentation of the TV market has really sort of helped because people are looking for stories and the, and so that's really kind of what brought it back. We were actually approached right after, soon after we published it by a, a, a motion picture producer who wanted to do a movie. And we thought, man, here we go. Well, it was a problem because he wanted to set the story in Georgia. He Why? was going to move the whole story to Georgia. And we just going, I, 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 no, this is, <laughs> this is, this is so Alaskan. You, no, you, no, you, no. Moving it to Georgia, that is like, that just, it, that is like my brain. I can't well, even it's fathom not, it. It's not it's that like the, what Hansen was doing, it doesn't seem like it would work literally anywhere but Alaska. <laughs> no, no one does that <laughs> oh. in other places. Well, it would work. I mean, you can see how you would abstract it, but it wouldn't have it. It wouldn't have the same flavor, right? Right. Right. I mean, Alaska at that time was was wild. You know, the Fourth Avenue in Anchorage, which is sometimes called the Strip, that's where all the topless and bottomless clubs are. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob Hope was there before. It was kind of like that, and he called it the world's longest bar. <laughs> you know, it's just bar after bar after bar. So there's that part of it. The other part is that you had a lot of people working on the pipeline. And what happens is a lot of them are, were from out of town. They were from the oil patch, which would be Oklahoma, Texas. They come up there to make a lot of money. They can't really spend it, you know, in the far north. There's really no place to spend it. So they will get a break for 10, seven, 10 days, something like that. And they'll go one of, to one of the bars. Now they don't have a bank, but the bars will, will cash their check mm-hmm. and they'll, and they'll, and they'll put it on their tab. And, and so you had money being freely spent. You had women being, some women were sort of pushed up there because there was a, there was a, a local mafia group out of Seattle that supplied women to all the clubs. And so there was a, a pipeline of women up there. And in fact, some of the clubs, they got new women dancers once a week. And, and so, so there was a whole, you know, milieu that, that may, that, that you was necessary to understand what was going on in Butcher Baker. That, that would not be replicated anywhere else. That makes an awful lot of sense. And it's so different from, I mean, 
us three here, we're in the Midwest. Um, we're we're over in Michigan, and you know we have our hey! own, <laughs> we have our own wilderness areas here, obviously. But oh, yeah. it's nothing like uh, Alaska. Like I think growing up, the impression that I always got of Alaska from schools is everyone up there lives in remote cabins and they hunt <laughs> they hunt elk and bears with only a knife made from a rock. Like that's yeah. the image that's given to us. So this whole. I, I never would have predicted there being the world's longest bar somewhere up there. Right. No, so it's, the longest bar just meaning that it's a whole series of clubs. Yeah. One right after the other. And so you can go to one, cross the street, go to another, walk up the street, go. Right. right. Sounds so like, like sounds like Vegas, New but cold or New Orleans. It sounds yeah. like uh, the New Orleans bar crawl. Yeah. Going down it, bourbon street. But cold. Yeah. But cold. I, ice crawl. I'm not I'm not saying well, that that's more up my alley, but it's definitely more up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, the other thing I think that people kind of miss about Alaska, speaking about Alaska as Alaska, the, the image is usually like it's cold, it's snowy all the time. But in fact, there's conservatively five climactic zones in Alaska. In the southeast Alaska, which is where what happened in Craig takes place, you don't really get that much snow. You get a lot of rain, like a ton of rain, because it's all the rain is coming in, weather is coming in from the Pacific. I know that's like, because I'm in Seattle, and, and we get some of those same storms. But yep. It's, you know, hundreds of inches of rain, which is why it's so green. And, and again, Southeast as opposed to Anchorage, but so those are really different, different places. All right. So next, uh, next question is, is, uh, this week we are going to be recording our episode on what happened in Craig. Uh, so we're all just dying to ask you the million dollar question. Do you think John Peel killed those people? That's that's the that's a hard question to answer, and I go back and forth on it, and I'll tell you why. It's kind of um, I'll say an upside down case in terms of the investigation. Yeah, like you prefer lots of evidence if you imagine sort of sort of a, a pyramid, a lot of evidence at the bottom, and it and it builds and it builds, and you go up and up and up the stack, and there it is. That's the person, and in in this case. First of all, there were lots of problems. The investigation was less than perfect. There was the fight between the two two groups of, of troopers who were doing the investigation. And it really was, what, a year before they even identified John Peel? So, you know, if you think the first 48 hours are important, I mean, you lost that a long time ago. So it was, it was upside down. Who are we left with? Well, we got this, we got this John Peel guy. The, the flip side of it is, and, and I remind people of this, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of avoiding the answer, but no I'll worries. No, no worries at <laughs> given, all. Given the conversation we had earlier about the lawsuits involving Peel, I completely understand. Yeah. Right. Being careful. So, but, but so the flip side is he was indicted not by one grand jury, but, but twice by a grand jury. There were two judges he went before. And his attorney was very persistent about mistrial and the trial. They both decided, nope, this is worthy of going to trial. 
There were two attorneys general in the state of Alaska who were responsible for carrying that forward after the first trial ended in a mistrial. And both of them decided, you know, there's enough here that this needs to go to trial. And multiple attempts at the appellate level to get it thrown out, and all those were pushed back. So is there evidence he did it? Yes. Is there sufficient evidence to convict him? That's where it gets tricky. But there's plenty of evidence that, you know, that he's the guy. And and getting a jury to believe it is 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 a different question. And I tend to fall inside like it should be difficult to convict somebody of murder. If you're going to send them away for 99 years, it probably should be hard. Right. No, I, I, I agree with that. Like it should be, it should be hard and it's on the prosecution to lay out the best, the best case possible in order to do it in reading the book. Like I'm kind of on the fence in terms of like where my personal thoughts are about it. Like I go, like you said, I go back and forth on how I feel about whether or not John, uh, whether or not I feel like John Peel did it or not. I think, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, uh, the three of us is, uh, the thing that I find the most compelling is the, the skipper of the Libby eight, his testimony. That was like the most, um, like I said, the most compelling evidence or the most compelling testimony, it, well, one of the most compelling testimony that almost tipped me over the edge. But at the same time, I still kind of flip flop because the uh, I feel like and I don't, I don't know, I feel like the prosecution bumbled a lot in their um, in playing into the defense attorney's game. And I think that screwed up their case a lot. Well, the. Uh- they had a weak case to begin with. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were handed a great investigation. In fact, I've talked to some folks up there that say, you know, that that's an embarrassing case <laughs> from the standpoint of, of the investigation. And now, in defense of the investigators, you've got a town that you can only get to by boat or plane. There's a thousand people there year round and it doubles during the fishing season. There's no fireboats there. The crime, whoever's committed this crime is dead set on on hiding the evidence. I mean, if the first thing you do is try to sink the boat, and when you don't sink it, you torch it, that that's just difficult. I mean, I contend to my dying day <laughs> that had the boat sunk, this case may well have been solved. Right, because like you, it's like easy you said, for me to say, but yeah, like you said in the book, it would have been a cleaner, cleaner crime scene at that point. Cleaner crime scene, you have way more evidence. Tor- torching a body, even if you just, even if you don't burn it, torching a body like all the way to ash, torching a body or a crime scene is basically the number one way you fuck up an investigation. Oh yeah, because any evidence they do recover is irreparably damaged. Mm-hmm. It's hard to identify. If it's even possible at all to identify the the remains at that point. So, well, you're stuck with bones and remember right. not just that, but it took a long time to get the fire out and then mm-hmm. it's a boat. Yeah. And, and so it's, you know, it's constantly being pushed by the tides and mm-hmm. flooded and, you know, it's just the worst possible crime scene. 
I mean, I, my, my editor at Epicenter was a, is a true crime writer and was actually a, where had worked as a private detective, private investigator. And her favorite part of the book was when they were doing the debriefment on the investor where they're just climbing over it mm-hmm. and improvising, you know, using shrimp screens, which by the way, are not the best. You'd really like something a little finer, but if you don't do it right now, you're going to lose even more. It was right. a race against the tides and the weather and, Oh, absolutely. It did not seem like it was an easy scene to investigate. I can also imagine the difficulty of investigating on a moving, unstable vessel, especially before they got that foam there. So a new fire could just break out at any given moment while you're on the boat. Yeah, it was it was it was a horrible scene. And so I think everything that happened after that was was really set in stone pretty much in those first few hours and he remember too when they got to the fire it's it's highly likely that people had already been dead for several days so it wasn't even a fresh crime scene if they had gotten there and it merely sunk i mean that's a good point like we don't actually know based on like because of the fire and everything else we don't actually know really when the yeah, they, crime happened they, outside of after their dinner and when the boat was they, found. They could have been dead within an hour of leaving the restaurant. Right. Remember, um, we're, we have to presume that the that like the youngest victim, Johnny Colehurst, we just have to presume that he's dead. Right. They never found any remains for him and they just had to assume he'd been completely consumed. And if I'd been an investigator on that case, that would have haunted me. Yeah. That it's like, is he somewhere and we just never found him yeah i mean that would definitely haunt you but we we actually do we do i just add we we sort of we do have a frame because it's after dinner and and sometime before six o'clock in the morning because there's witnesses that saw the investor leaving the dock that's right okay, that's right yeah. yeah yeah no and uh all right, so thank you for answering that question as uh, tactfully as you could. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question that I want to ask you, and this is more in line with what uh, with the kinds of books our show uh, does when we're not doing true crime. Uh, and feel free to say no and just move on, and that's completely fine, but I'd be remiss to ask. So you write true crime. Obviously, you're very grounded in the facts and the research. But have you had any paranormal experiences of your own? Uh, kind of bring it over onto our side of things a little. Um, or any kind of stories around you that you've heard that you'd be okay with sharing? Yeah, let me think about that. Um, I mean, I was thinking, I was actually thinking about the three questions, right? So like paranormal, normal, abnormal. I think I tend toward the abnormal and my own experiences <laughs> and now no but i mean i think there's you know i, th- I think the johnny Coulter thing is is really actually kind of could flow into that paranormal vibe right like he's missing where did what happened to him sure absolutely i i think also uh larry demert jr's kind of reminiscence of of that night where first there's a, he something awakens him and then we remembers it's a scream and then he sees people sort of clambering over the other boats to go out to the investor. Mm-hmm. 
haunting she's image. Kind of a ghostly figure feels a bump on the boat. Yeah. So, so all those, I think all those things kind of lend themselves to that explanation um, uh, among others. And while I'm on that topic, I think the other thing that sort of is harder to understand, I'll try to explain it because I think the the setting here is very important. So Craig is very small and their harbor is quite small. And so when you have a a thousand fishermen come up and and all their boats, the harbor gets really, really crowded. And, And imagine going to a concert or something and you're, and you're, like you're late and and the parking lot is absolutely filled with cars and the only place you can park is out on the road somewhere and you have to hike so in the in the instance of the of the fishing community what they do is is they they raft up and by that i mean there's not really a place where they can dock one boat can kind of tie up sideways to the dock and the two other boats are literally physically tied to that inside boat. And, and so in the investor case, they were the, they were the third boat out. So whoever did this had to climb over one boat, climb over a second boat, climb on to the investor, which is the farthest boat out. And so that, that always like, how, how does, how does that even happen? Right. Yeah. Like how do, how do you get three boats out and not be seen or, or barely seen? I didn't think about the fact that they would have had that whomever it was to get to the investor just has to, they have to climb over two boats. And it seems like a lot of people um, that are there, at least during fishing season, they stay on their boat, like even at night too, it seems like. Well, there Wasn't there a party happening on one of the boats? Uh, yeah, well, it was, it was the end of the, it was the end of the season. There was only one more opening. And so some of the people were like, we're done. We made our money. It was it was a really crummy season. There was a botulism scare earlier that year in Europe, and and so that really depressed the market. So mm. you really had to catch a lot of fish, and and so people were yeah. It's the end of the season. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. The last last time I was up in Craig, I was up there with my wife, and she'd never really been to a small fishing village, and we're sitting in there in this bar. It's kind of reputation as a wild bar. It's called the Craig Inn. And we're just kind of minding our business. This guy comes in, fisherman. He's already drunk and he's just yelling and he's cursing. And he goes up to the bartender and they ring the bell. And suddenly there's free drinks for everybody in the place. Uh. And he doesn't have any money. He's got credit because they only they all get paid at the end of the season. And so he's signed up for credit. She knows where he's selling his fish. And once he finally settles up, he'll get paid. And so there's just just crazy energy at the end of the season. And right. that's what was going on there. So it's just in, insanity. Craig used to be infamous for the fights and there was no cops and their jail was just a little I almost want to say an outhouse, <laughs> not much bigger than an outhouse. So it was, it was, a, it was cr- crazy energy there. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, when you're working as much as those, those guys seem to be doing, like 
working 12 plus hours on at a time like at, for 30 days straight or weeks, right. at least weeks straight yeah i mean for me i don't like working five days in a row and only working 40 hours in that week so i can't imagine trying to do more than that and let alone well, the, the physical labor that's fishing right well the flip the flip side of that is that they can make a year's worth of money in those few months right if it's a good season you know, I went to high school with a guy who went fishing, you know, he's 17 or 18 years old and he comes back from a, from fishing that summer. He's driving a brand new Corvette. Right. We're all like, where did you get that Corvette? I ran in. Oh, you know, fishing. And, you know, and just so casually. You work hard. You make, you make a lot of money mm-hmm. and then you're done. And it's, it's definitely a young man's job with the exception or actually young woman. Cause there, there are now women actually in the fishing industry as well, which is a good thing. Except for the skipper. So the skippers are, you, I mean, you need somebody who really knows what they're doing. So the skippers tend to be older and they've worked their way up and they, so they know what they're doing. They know where the fish are. They have all the connections, but yeah, you're, you're fishing all day. And then once your, your fish, your vessel is full and can hold no more, you're unloading that fish. You don't want to go into town to the cannery. So, so there's tenders that come out and, and they have these big vacuum pumps that take, I mean, they do now, but in the old days, I mean, you're, it's what called, it's called brailing. So you're literally hauling that fish out in buckets and stuff so it's yeah it's it's a lot of work yeah i i can only imagine i watched exactly one season of deadliest catch and told myself i was never gonna fish like that ever. <laughs> well so so De- deadliest catch is definitely is definitely insane now that the salmon fishing actually is on endland waters mostly endland waters and 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 they stretch from where i live in seattle all the way up to southeast alaska so there's a lot of islands so they're actually pretty calm there's very few storms so it's not it's not as absolutely insane in terms of the weather and the conditions although obviously you don't want to fall in right no matter where you are (laughs) but it's, it's mostly just damn hard work yeah, yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I'm, uh, I am definitely, um, I'm pampered in my office job and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All, all right. Well, um, that brings us to our last question, which is, uh, the, the classic one that I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times before, uh, where can our listeners find you and your work? We usually do ask what's next for you, but as we've already established, we can't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can find me on lelandhale.com slash WordPress. And it's a link to all my blogs and you can buy books there. There's links to buying books. I'm on Amazon. I'm on all the big platforms. Wonderful. Sell, sell, sell. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And when your next book comes out, please keep us in mind. We would love to do it on our show and uh, have another chat with you about it. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You guys will love it. 
I'm sure, I'm sure we will. love it. I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Other than that, uh, we got to thank you very, very much for giving us your time this evening. Uh, it should be you know, pretty early enough to go catch some fishing today, if you would like, out where you are. <laughs> uh, as for us, it the moon, the moon has risen, so we have to hide in our hovels away from the Michigan winter. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you, on the, are you in the north or the south? We're, we're in the south. We're by Detroit. Okay. Yep, we're in the Detroit area. It's just cold. I'm just being a whiner. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, Michigan winters suck. No, you know, when I was a kid, I hitchhiked through uh, the, the northern peninsula. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. And that was quite the experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had long hair and it was really raining and nobody would give us a room. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally some people picked us up and they let us stay at their house. And we really liked them, but then turned out they were kind of racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that you'll run into that in the UP as uh, well. Uh, yeah, northern Michigan is very um, rural. Yeah, they, uh, yeah. We were actually up there not too long ago for mm-hmm. uh, Michigan Paracon, which is the big paranormal con that happens up in Sault Ste. Marie. Which is just over the bridge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where we went through. Yeah, Sault Ste. Marie is, is, is a cool town, especially if you like... It is cool. You know, like, I like the town itself, and I like going to the locks. Yeah, it was very, very yeah, neat. It's, it's right. awesome up here. All right, well, before we get too sidetracked, uh, recording a whole other interview about the UP, I think we're going to end it here. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Yes, yes thank, thank you. you so much. Nick, Jay, Rory, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, Mr. Hale.